Well, here we are in a new year. I guess sometimes it kind of felt like that 2020 was never going to end. And I hope you're excited for this new year that we're entering into. I know that God is working through all things uh, in the lives of those who love him for good. Which means that this year, as Stephen was telling us last week, thank you so much, Stephen, by the way, for for the message you brought last week, uh, that God is at work even in these moments that seem dark, and that God is preparing and accomplishing things in these moments in our lives that are important in his kingdom work. So I hope you're anticipating what God is up to and what he has in, in store for us in this coming year. And as I've been preparing, we're returning, uh, we finished our Advent season, and we're returning today to our messages from the book of Romans. Uh, so I'm, uh, we're returning back to that, and as I was preparing this message, I've been uh, pondering and thinking about uh, how oftentimes in life, balance is important. And I do think uh, zeal or passion or commitment is vital. There's a lot in Scripture that warns us against apathy or uh, kind of being lukewarm uh, about the things of God. We need to have zeal. We need to be passionate. But as we've also seen in Romans, it is possible to have zeal that is misdirected or misguided or that is not according to the truth. As Paul talks about some of his Jewish compatriots who have rejected Christ and are still zealous for the things of God while having rejected the heart of everything God is about and up to. Uh, So sometimes we can be very committed and zealous, but if we focus on one end and neglect the other, we can fall into an imbalance that makes it kind of pointless that uh, makes all of our passion and commitment end up uh, being meaningless or pointless or uh, not accomplishing what God wants and as an example of that I would mention for example a a correction Jesus offered to the Pharisees about the way they taught scripture uh, because they had figured out that uh, if you categorize laws and, and commandments of God and put Uh, the more important ones on top and kind of put them in descending order of importance, then they had figured out a way that you could refuse to support your elderly parents financially uh, in their old age if what money you had available you had devoted to God. Then they said that lets you off the hook because uh, honoring God is more important than honoring your parents. The point Jesus made to the Pharisees was you cannot just do one of the things God has told you to do. You have to do them all. And you can't use one commandment to let you off the hook for another. And if we uh, zero in on just one thing and neglect the other, we imbalance things in such a way that we are not doing what God asks of us. As another example, I would point out that Jesus, I believe on multiple times throughout his ministry, was asked this burning question from people who wanted to please God. What is the greatest commandment in Scripture? I find it very interesting that Jesus never responded to that question by just identifying the greatest commandment. He always talked about two commandments. 
And he did say that one came before the other. One was more important than the other. But the reason he never separated those two is because we have to keep both of them for us to keep either of them the way God intends. And he always said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Love your neighbor as yourself. Sometimes we want to be very passionate about God. Love him and neglect loving our neighbor. And Jesus says we can't do one without the other. We can't uh, ignore one in favor of the other. We must do both. Now the, the burning passion uh, that's on Paul's heart as he sits down to write this letter to the churches in Rome is the gospel. This good news, this message that Christ has entrusted to us, this vital message that contains the secret to unlocking the eternal purpose of every human being that lives on earth. There is no more important message on earth than the gospel. And uh, Paul, as we see in the letter to the Romans, is very passionately committed to sharing this message with others. But uh, it's interesting to me as I read this letter that Paul doesn't let that passion obscure or uh, hide other things that come with living in the gospel. And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at today. We're in Romans chapter 15, verses 25 through 33. And I've titled today's message, Living the Whole Gospel. So let's dive right in. We'll read verses 25 through 27 to get started. But now I am going to Jerusalem to serve the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia were well pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints that are in Jerusalem. They were well pleased because they are also debtors to them. For if the Gentiles have shared from them in spiritual things, they must also minister to them in material things. Paul uh, is uh, telling the churches in Rome. He's mentioned earlier in the letter of his plans to go to Rome and from Rome share with them and for them to back him spiritually and perhaps even financially and uh, send him on to spread the gospel in the western half of the Roman Empire going all the way to Spain, the furthest reaches west. And uh, this is his, his great passion, but he's explaining to them why he cannot go directly there now. And here's the thing, if you look at a map of, the, uh, uh, of that area of the world, he was in Greece right now, which is just a short uh, sea uh, distance away from Italy. I mean, if he wanted to go to Rome, he was uh, within a month or two of travel to get there. Uh, but instead, he's going all the way to the furthest eastern shores of the Mediterranean to deliver this offering. So uh, he, he could be in Rome very quickly now, and that's very clearly the burning desire in Paul's heart. Why doesn't he do that? And here's what he explains to them, that he has to go to Jerusalem, <coughs> and he's going there to serve the saints in Jerusalem, those who belong to Christ. 
In what sense is he going to serve them? Well, he explains in verse 26, Macedonia and Achaia. These are two regions, Macedonia being just north of Greece and Achaia being uh, what the Romans had designated the region name for what we call Greece today. Macedonia and Achaia were well pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints that are in Jerusalem. Here's what's happened. Uh, this is a time period in which things in uh, the territories of Israel have not been going well. And there is poverty, there is famine, there is difficulty and hardship. And you add to that that it's a political powder keg. And people are, are fighting and, and uh, revolution is brewing. People are very angry with the Romans and want to get them out of there. And others aren't and want them to stay. And it's, it's just... Uh, becoming a very hostile environment. Add to that that there's extreme poverty and, and need going on. And it's just a bad time for that area of the world. Meanwhile, in the areas of Greece and Macedonia, things have been going well. And in fact, in Corinth, for example, people are extremely wealthy and commerce is going great. They're in a great position and uh, things are going uh, very well for them. So Paul has observed this imbalance in the larger body of Christ. And he has decided to do something about it. Now, when he talks about these churches uh, being well pleased to make some contribution, he's, he's not quite uh, giving the full picture of how hard Paul himself has fought to gather this offering. It isn't just that, oh, it, it just kind of sprung into their minds and they gathered an offering and called up Paul and said, would you mind delivering this for us? Uh, in truth, Paul has spent years passionately arguing for this offering. He has devoted full chapters in his letters to the Corinthian congregation to uh, promoting their participation, their very uh, generous participation <coughs> in this offering. And uh, why has Paul devoted so much effort to this offering? Uh, well, uh, I think for that we have to know the full story of what's been going on. As Paul has gone out on these missionary journeys and he is wrapping up his third and most successful journey missionary journey and uh, every time he's he's gone a little bit further and uh, has stayed a little bit longer and been able to accomplish a little bit more and he's he's been doing really well but he's noticed throughout these years of missionary activity that his greatest challenge has come not from people outside the church who reject the gospel although there's been a lot of that and persecution and him being chased out of churches uh, of cities that's happened throughout his whole ministry but his biggest challenge has happened from within the church because he would start a church in a Gentile city where the Jews had rejected the gospel but the Gentiles had turned to Christ in faith and then behind him would come in Jews from Jerusalem who were very passionate about keeping the law of Moses and they would come in and tell people yes this gospel Paul has shared with you is great and Christ is the Messiah and you need to put your faith in him but if you want to be saved you have to do more than put your faith in Jesus you also have to keep the law of Moses and they were trying to uh, kind of force the new believers to hold on to both the old covenant and the new covenant and Paul knew that that 
cannot happen, that the new covenant was actually the fulfillment of the old covenant and that it supersedes and annuls the old covenant because it is the true fulfillment of God's plan. And you can't kind of bring in the old one. Paul knew this and Paul's initial reaction to this, if we read the letter to the Galatians, is white hot anger, rage. He is livid when he sits down to write the letter to the Galatian congregations. And in that letter, he goes so far as to say, I wish these guys who are so obsessed with circumcision would just finish the job, just mutilate themselves and be done with it. Uh, He's very upset that they are perverting the gospel and trying to reinsert into what Christ has accomplished for us some kind of merit on our part, such as going through the ritual of circumcision or keeping dietary laws or observing certain rituals in terms of uh, calendar and and Sabbath observance and that kind of thing. So uh, Paul is very livid when he writes Galatians. And makes it very clear that if you're trying to bring your merit into the gospel, you have separated yourself from Christ. But I think when he sits down to write Romans, probably a few years later, he's had time to chew on this. And not that, not only that, he's had time to live the gospel life and there's something that begins to happen in our hearts as we live the gospel uh, which Paul comes to realize is at its heart a message of reconciliation it is a message of peace with God and with fellow man and Christ is accomplishing that in us by breaking us free from the power of sin and placing his Holy Spirit within us that begins a process of transformation by which we are restored to communion with God and with each other. As Paul has been living the gospel, when he sits down to write Romans, he's uh, already arrived at a much better approach to this problem of Judaizers coming up behind him from Jerusalem. He could have just dug in his heels and said, I'm right, they're wrong, let's draw the battle lines, let's separate, you guys go your way, I'll go my way, and how many churches have solved problems that way? Let's just split. Paul found a better way. And as he began to realize this problem that the believers in Jerusalem were facing, and the abundance that the churches he had been planting were enjoying. Paul began to see this as a great opportunity to heal a deep wound in the church and to bring Jewish and Gentile believers together and to help the Jewish believers grow in their understanding of the gospel so that they open their hearts to what God is doing among the Gentiles. And and this contribution he has been fighting for years. Consider what a, a great personal investment Paul has had to make for this offering to happen. Not only writing letters and seeing that they're delivered to the churches, but then going, walking hundreds, thousands of miles to go to those congregations and asking those congregations to designate somebody to put his life on hold and join Paul and accompany him to deliver this offering to Jerusalem, which is a commitment of a year or more, just to deliver the offering. 
And, and just to ensure that there's no uh, misuse of funds and that everything is done rightly and that Satan can't step in and taint this effort in any way. Consider all that Paul has put into that. You, you don't catch that from just reading this, uh, his description here in verses 25 through 27. But this is the blood and sweat and tears that has gone behind this. And even now as Paul sits there in Corinth, writing this letter, and he is just a month or two away from Rome. And he wants to go there. He could just say, let the representatives we've gathered take this and deliver it to Jerusalem, but he knows how important this is, and he is going to see it delivered before he continues with his missionary work. That means, at the very least, adding another year to his travel. He's going to have to sail and travel all the way to Jerusalem and then come all the way back and make it to Rome. That, that, that was a very uh, long addition to his plans. But Paul is determined to do this. And he explains how he has persuaded the Gentile churches to participate in this offering. They were well pleased because they are also debtors to them. And he, he has told the Gentile believers, you owe a debt of gratitude to the Jewish people. And even today, we who are not of Jewish descent, we owe a huge debt of gratitude to the Jewish people. For they were God's instrument to bring Christ to us. And if the Gentiles have shared from them in spiritual things, they must also minister to them in material things. And I've translated it that way because I think that's kind of the sense of what we're talking about here. But there's another layer that I've obscured in my translation and everybody else whose translation I've checked does the same thing. Actually, what Paul uses there are two words that he's used uh, as kind of two ways of describing the Christian life uh, throughout his letters. He talks about spiritual things and fleshly things. And when Paul uses those, he, he always uses spiritual things with a capital S, things of the Spirit of God, things that have to do with what God does in us. And fleshly, he uses to describe what we bring to the table apart from God, what we can do within our own means and resources, what we do as mere human beings. So he says, if Gentiles have received this gift of a spiritual blessing. And let's put it with a capital S. It's because of the Jews that we have received the Christ who has given us the very gift of the Holy Spirit of God. What greater gift could there be than God himself being restored to us who were uh, made enemies of God because of our sins? So if that's the gift we have received because of the Jews then surely us giving a merely fleshly contribution, us giving back to them what we have available in our own means and resources, and even if that means money or wealth, isn't that a, a, a pittance? Isn't that a, a, the least you could possibly do in response to the enormity of the gift received from the Jews? 
And Paul sees it that way, that yes, the Jews have been to a certain degree a thorn in the side of the Gentile churches, and yet the Gentile churches still owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to the Jewish people. In fact, the church was started by Jewish believers. And yes, some of these are a little bit misguided and their grasp of the gospel is still tainted by an unwillingness to see how the old covenant has brought us into the new covenant. Uh, and, And how many of them still deal with trappings of legalism and that kind of thing. But let's be honest, isn't that something we Christians today still struggle with? Uh, That doesn't mean we just turn our backs on each other. That means we pursue healing and mending these breaks and uh, finding together where Christ is drawing us. That's what Paul was committed to. And Paul is living the gospel fully. He could have said, no, I'm sorry, guys. My ministry and calling is to be a missionary. That's what I do. I have been called as the apostle to the Gentiles and there are a lot of Gentiles out there in the western half of the Roman Empire that still haven't heard the gospel and it is my responsibility, my calling to go out there and do that. Let some Jew take that offering. Uh, Let Peter do it. He has a ministry to the Jews. Why doesn't Peter deliver this offering and I'll go do my thing? Well, Paul has come to understand That the gospel we preach is meaningless if we're not living it. And we can't neglect living the gospel to tell people about the gospel. We can't neglect church life to tell people about the thing that introduces you into church life. And we don't focus all of our efforts on church life and fail in the great commission we have been entrusted with to share the message of life with the world. We have to do both. We have to live the gospel fully. I have a question from these verses that I'd like to share. Paul was itching to go to Rome and from there to Spain to share the gospel with the lost. But he put his plan on hold to deliver an offering to the saints in Jerusalem. How do you strive to keep an equal emphasis on serving the needs of the church and of the lost? Let's continue reading verses 28 and 29. Therefore, once I have completed this and have sealed this fruit to them, I will set off into Spain by way of you. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of Christ's blessing. So Paul conveys his plans. I'm going to uh, go to Jerusalem. And this language here, I'm going to seal this fruit to them. First of all, he describes the offering he's delivering as fruit. And what he means by that is to remind the Jewish believers who are going to be receiving this offering that this uh, recompense they are receiving back is come as the fruit of their sowing the gospel among the Gentiles. Because the Jews have shared the gospel with the Gentiles, now the Gentile churches have borne this fruit that is coming back to them. 
and he talks about sealing this fruit to them. And uh, that language there is the idea that he is going there to explain the significance of this and to certify that every penny that's been gathered is accounted for and make sure that there is nothing out of order in the delivery of this offering. He's going to seal this fruit to them and from then he plans on coming all the way back past Greece making it all the way to Rome and from there he's going to spend some time with the churches in Rome and when it's the right moment he will head out to Spain to share the gospel west here's what Paul says and he has full confidence about this I know that when I come to you I will come in the fullness of Christ's blessing." We who know the rest of the story can't read these words without feeling that there's some irony in this statement because what lies ahead for Paul, as we know, is nothing of what he's described here. This whole idea of dropping off the offering and then traveling straight back to Rome and from there heading out to Spain, that didn't happen. As far as we know, Paul never made it to Spain. What did happen? Well... When he arrives in Jerusalem, sadly, we know nothing about how the church in Jerusalem received this offering. Luke and Acts says nothing about it. When he does arrive, very shortly after his arrival, he is arrested, falsely accused of something in the temple courts, and he is arrested and ends up spending two uh, years, two and a half years in prison in Caesarea Maritima, uh, there just some miles away from Jerusalem on the coast. Uh, Eventually, after two and a half years in prison, Paul will find himself forced to appeal his case to the Caesar in Rome because he learns of a plot by the Jews in Jerusalem to assassinate him. They're trying to convince the procurator to bring him back to Jerusalem to hear his case, and their plan is along the way they're going to assault him and kill him. Paul hears about this, and uh, because the procurator is unwilling to change his plans, he says, okay, I have no recourse but to use my Roman citizenship, and I'm going to appeal my case to the Caesar, so you're going to have to deliver me to Rome, and the Caesar is going to have to decide on my case. So after two and a half years, uh, he's going to sail to Rome as a prisoner in chains and after surviving a shipwreck along the way he will finally make it to Rome where he will spend at least two more years in prison waiting for his case to be heard. The book of Acts ends with him having spent two years in prison and still no hearing before the Caesar. We don't know how long he ended up having to wait. So that's what the fullness of Christ's blessing is going to look like in Paul's life. This offering is apparently going to fail to accomplish what he hoped. He's going to be arrested. He's going to spend four and a half years in prison, suffer a shipwreck, and is still going to be in chains four and a half years later. I wonder if Paul had been told this ahead of time. Uh, how excited he would have been about the, the shape Christ's blessing was going to take in his life over the next few years. But 
The truth is that Christ was doing amazing things in Paul in those four and a half years. You see, it's during those four and a half years that Paul writes Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philemon. And these letters, when Paul is forced to stop doing his missionary work. He's no longer free to go out and share the gospel. He's limited to sharing it with those who come to visit him in prison and his guards and the people around him. And he has so much time on his hands, something he never had before. During those long years, uh, Paul meditates deeply on the gospel and on who Christ is and on how it all hangs together. And from this, we end up with the glorious Christology of Colossians. And Paul comes to realize the depth and how it all intertwines and how the church fits into all of this. Colossians and Ephesians flesh out things about who Christ is and how the church fits together as this glorious body of Christ and how even our spiritual maturity is the, the, the thing where together we are growing up into the fullness of Christ. All of these things that have shaped Christians' understanding of what it means to live together in Christ through 2,000 years of Christian history, that is the product of these four and a half years. It's interesting that Paul probably thought of his letters as just a necessary second best. I can't be there in person. I'll just sit down and write a letter and try to accomplish with a letter partially what I could do much better in person. He probably thought of his letters as uh, just a, a minor thing. But ponder for a moment the letters of Paul. What impact have they had on the church through 2,000 years of its history? So yes, Paul was going to experience, when he finally makes it to Rome, he will arrive in the fullness of Christ's blessing. But sometimes Christ's blessing is, looks nothing like a blessing from our perspective. And yet God was accomplishing the amazing things in Paul's life that needed to be accomplished. And he was blessing millions of people by doing this in Paul's life. Paul can't see it from his perspective, but he knows that when he does finally arrive in Rome, and even though this will look nothing like the way he had planned for it to look, when he arrives in Rome, he will come in the fullness of Christ's blessing because Christ will be doing the, the wonderful work that he is up to in Paul's life. I have a question from these verses. Paul was confident his visit to Rome would come in the fullness of Christ's blessing. In his case, this would mean years of imprisonment. How do you deal with it when Christ's blessing looks like a curse? And let's finish reading verses 30 through 33. I urge you, siblings, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, to contend alongside me in prayers to God for me so that I might be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service into Jerusalem might be acceptable to the saints, so that in joy, having come to you by God's will, I might be refreshed with you. Now may the God of peace be with you all. Amen.
So up until this point, it might seem that Paul has no idea that things might go wrong with this delivery of the offering. But now in these verses, it becomes clear that, yes, Paul has some inkling uh, that his visit to Jerusalem is going to meet resistance. He knows Satan has no desire to see this reconciliation happen. And he knows that there are problems without and within the church with this offering. So he asks, he pleads, he urges the, these brothers and sisters in Christ that are with him in the gospel life, even though they've not met personally, the Holy Spirit connects them and Paul is asking them to join him and to uh, fight with him. Uh, because of the common bond they share with Jesus Christ as Lord and the love that the Holy Spirit places in their hearts for one another. He says, please contend alongside with me. Fight with me in prayers to God for me for what I'm trying to do now. And he, he knows that there are people outside the faith who are going to resist what he's trying to do. So he has to be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, people who have rejected what God is up to and who want nothing to do with the gospel and have not come to what Paul described in the opening chapter of Romans. They have not come to the obedience of the faith, but instead are disobedient to the gospel. Uh, he asks for prayers that God will deliver him from those who are enemies of the gospel. But he knows that the problem might also happen within the church, that my service into Jerusalem might be acceptable to the saints, that the church will receive this offering, that they won't turn their noses up at it, that they won't look at it wrong. And Paul knows this. How often is God bringing good things to us and we're too immature, too self-centered, too focused on the exactly wrong thing to receive what God is trying to give us. And we trample it and we mess it up. Paul knows this can happen. And he asks for prayers that, that God will so move among the believers in Jerusalem that they receive fully the benefit. And the money is the least what needs to happen here is a spiritual healing within the body of Christ. That they will be open to that happening and not just take the money and spend it, but, but that their, their hearts will be moved and that they will see what God is up to and that they will allow this to be a time of growing. How often do we miss out on what God's bringing to us because we're unwilling to receive it? So he asked for prayers on that front. And he anticipates coming to Rome in joy by God's will and being refreshed with them that his time among them will build him back up and he will uh, recover strength. And he ends with a blessing. Now may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. The God of peace. You know, one of the titles of Jesus is Prince of Peace. And the whole reason Paul is going through all the effort of delivering this offering is to make peace. There's a letter he wrote that is only about making peace. The letter of Philemon 
is an attempt to reconcile a runaway slave with uh, a, uh, uh, his slave owner that he has run away from and perhaps even stolen from in the process. He writes this whole little letter to reconcile those two who have now, uh, this runaway slave has come to faith. They are now brothers in the faith and that it changes, transforms their relationship. Paul spent his life not just preaching the gospel, but living it. And that means that we are committed to a reconciliation lifestyle. That we're seeking to bring people back into communion with God and with each other. May the God of peace be with us all. So be it. I'm reminded of Paul's commitment to the church as well as his commitment to the lost. And perhaps the most moving moment in, in the book of Acts is when he is on his way to Jerusalem. The further he goes and he stops and visits with believers along the way on his journey back from Corinth as he finishes writing this letter back to Jerusalem, every time he visits with believers, they're going to say, you know, the Holy Spirit has revealed to me that when you get to Jerusalem, it's not going to go well for you. You're going to end up in chains. You're going to be in prison. Your life is in danger, Paul. And they keep repeating this over and over again. How does Paul respond to all of this? Acts 21, 13. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul was so committed to sharing the gospel with the lost and to safeguarding the gospel among those who are already saved that he would give his life for it. And he tells fellow believers, don't ask me to choose myself over the gospel. I have a final question from these verses. Paul asked the Roman congregations to battle with him in prayer for the unity of the church. How do we work together for the unity of the church around the world? So we arrive here at the end of our message today and I'm reminded as we've wrapped up our Advent season, this phrase that is so often repeated, the phrase of the angels, right? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's really what Jesus came to bring is peace and in, in every dimension and the gospel is about giving us what we need to find that peace. Sin has made it impossible for us because sin has made us enemies of God, each other, and the world. Even enemies of ourselves. And Christ fixes all of that. And as we live the gospel, we need to fully commit not just to telling people the message of reconciliation, but to the work involved in implementing the gospel's reality in our lives. 
We need to be committed to paying whatever price needs to be paid to safeguard peace and unity among the people of God so that the gospel we preach is actually not undermined by a church life that denies the reality of it. The gospel must be preached and the gospel must be lived. And we cannot do one and ignore the other. We must do both. My prayer for you today is that as we enter into this new year, you commit your life and heart fully to both dimensions of the gospel that we've been talking about today. That you will live it and you will share it. God bless you. We're going to sing a closing song as everybody's coming up. Let me say a word of prayer. Dear God, thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much that when Jesus came to us, he came not just to fix part of our problem, but that he came to fix every single aspect of it. And Lord, I, I, I pray that you help us, those of us who know you and who have come and ent entered into this gospel life, help us to commit ourselves fully to living this gospel and to being committed to peace within and without, but to never neglect the terrible need of the lost who have yet to be brought into this gospel. Help us to be fully committed to both and to be willing to give up our lives, to lay down our lives for this gospel you have placed in our lives. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name, it's by your merits alone that we pray. Amen.